Hello, I'm Gemma Birrell, Artistic Director of the 2014 Sydney Writers' Festival. You're listening to Richard Flanagan, Love and War, with Richard Flanagan, interviewed by Stephen Gale, recorded live at the festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Stephen Gale. I'm very pleased to welcome you to Sydney Writers' Festival this afternoon for our event with our guest, Richard Flanagan. Uh, Richard studied at the University of Tasmania and at Oxford University in England on a Rhodes Scholarship. Um, His journalism includes writings on literature, the environment, and politics in, among others, the New York Times, the London Telegraph, the Monthly, and the New Yorker. His collected nonfiction has been published as And What Do You Do, Mr. Gable? He's wrote and directed the film version of his novel, The Sound of One Hand Clapping, and co-wrote Baz Luhrmann's film, Australia. His other novels include Gould's Book of Fish, The Unknown Terrorist, and Wanting, But today, we're going to be concentrating on his latest novel, The Tremendous, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, which has already won the 2014 Indie Book of the Year Award and is shortlisted for this year's Miles Franklin Award. Um, Our event is one with which I'm sure you're broadly... Yeah. Our event is one with which I'm sure you're broadly familiar. We're going to open with a reading. Uh, Richard and I are going to talk about his novel. There'll be another reading a bit later on, and we'll make sure we leave plenty of time for your questions. Afterwards, there will be a book signing upstairs in the Ruth Cracknell room. But again, please join me in welcoming Richard Flanagan. Thank you. Um, thank you, Stephen, and um, thank you for all coming here today. I, um, I've been working on a new novel, and uh, coming to these sort of events, as always, uh, requires a rather different frame of mind. And uh, I did my first gig for the festival up in Katoomba the other day, and um, in the hour before it, I was wandering down the main street of Katoomba, and outside the Katoomba Specsavers was a woman staring into a pair of glasses talking to a friend saying how she needed a new pair because her dog had just eaten her dentures and she'd not realised. And um, I I realised, as Shakespeare wrote in uh, Henry IV, wisdom cries out in the street and yet no man regards it. (laughs) Which is a line that he um, he actually stole from Proverbs and was nicked yet again in um, the great tradition of theft that's also called literature by Joyce in Ulysses. I... um, when I, when I finished writing this novel, I realised um, uh, it was a street I'd actually been walking down all my life. Uh, this first reading um, is one that Stephen suggested. Um, you get to a certain age where you realise you don't really have an aesthetics but only a few low tricks, and Stephen, who's worked in theatre, has even more. And uh, <laughs> he, I, he felt uh, this would be a good place to begin. It's, um, it comes from a chapter which describes um, the amputation of a leg um, in, the, um, in the jungle hospital in the POW camp in 1943 by Dorigo Evans of Jack Rainbow's leg. 
Blood was everywhere. Blood over the bamboo, blood over them. Blood dripping oily lines in the dark mud below. It took a few more moments for Jimmy Bigelow and Watt Cooney to get a good grip of Jack Rainbow and hold him. But still that emaciated tiny body jolted up and down as if electricity were coursing through it. And their grip slipped in the blood that now seemed to grease everything. The leg, said Dorigo Evans, get the leg. But there was really no leg left to get only a weirdly moving and bloody thing that seemed just to want to be left alone. The tiny piece of thigh that remained was now so slippery with blood that it was very difficult to work on. And in the dim light and the confusion of blood, Dorigo Evans was having trouble seeing anything clearly. The tremors eased, then stopped and he managed to find the sutures holding the flesh together so that he could get them back to the femoral artery. But when he snipped them, Jack Rainbow jolted again. Squizzy spoon slipped in the bloody slime and blood spurted in a wild arc that reached as far as the foot of Jack Rainbow's good leg. Dorigo was frantically searching the muck of Jack's stump with his fingers, trying to find something to stitch pinching, vaulting, slime, groping, pitching, slop. There was nothing, nothing to stitch into, nothing that might hold the thread. The artery walls were wet, blotting paper. There was, realised Dorigo Evans, with a rising horror as the blood continued to pump out, as Jack Rainbow's body went into a terrible series of violent fits, nothing he could do. But there must be, he told himself, think, Think, look. But with each galvanic jolt, blood was spewing out in a small fountain. It was as if Jack Rainbow's body were willingly pumping itself dry. Dorigo Evans was trying to stitch as far up the artery as he could go, and the blood was still galloping out. Squizzy Taylor was unable to staunch the flow. Blood was everywhere. He was desperately trying to think of something that might buy some time but there was nothing. He was stitching, the blood was pumping, there was no light, the stitches kept ripping, nothing held. Push harder, he was yelling to Squizzy Taylor. Stop the fucking flow. But no matter how hard Squizzy Taylor pushed, still the blood kept surging, spilling over Dorigo Evans' hand and arm, running down into that Asian mud and the Asian morass that they could not escape, that Asian hell that was dragging them all ever closer to itself. The convulsions gave way to shivering. Dorigo Evans was pushing deeper into the stump. The flesh was tearing and falling away as he worked. His needle at one point hit the bone. He was trying to think. He was trying to find some way. He was trying not to give up hope. When he heard Jack speak, a few low words that were not much more than gas and cracks of breath. Big fella, he said. Jack, will I die? I think so. Cold, he said. So fucking cold. Dorigo Evans kept steadily working on Jack's stump. His bare feet ankle deep in the bloody mud below, 
the makeshift bamboo operating table. His outer calm, a strange thing he knew he preserved at the moments of greatest inner turmoil. He kept looking for that piece of artery, trying to find something in his work to hold on to, unconsciously clawing at the mud with his toes. And then finally he had it, and he worked with the utmost care and delicacy to make sure his work would hold and Jack live. And when it was done, and he lifted his head, he knew Jack had been dead for some minutes, and no one had known how to tell him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Um, the novel doesn't shirk from you know, the reality of life and death in the prison of war camp uh, during the Second World War. Can you talk a little about how, you, in the writing of this, how you managed to dis describe these terrible things with such lucidity? Um, there's, um, there's a great moment in the uh, Roman Polanski film, The Pianist, um, which of course is about the, the Warsaw Ghetto, and uh, the, the hero, Spielmann, the, the pianist, is walking through the ghetto in a blizzard, mm. and it's a long shot, and um, scattered in the foreground are dead children, corpses of dead babies just lying there. And Polanski just holds the shot, and he never goes to the close-up. He just follows Spielmann, who for a moment glances, and then looks back to where he's going and keeps on going. If you, you contrast that with a, a film like um, uh, Spielberg's Schindler's List, in that Spielberg goes in for the close-up on moments of horror. He tries to dramatise them. He, he tries to um, demand that you think what he thinks of them. Polanski, who was a survivor of the ghetto, does a very different thing. He reminds us that um, uh, in life, um, we observe things, but we only ascribe meaning to them later. Spielman sees the corpses, and we know that it, they're registered, but they mean nothing to him, because they can mean nothing to him at that moment. Mm. And, and, and in this book, I, I had the problem that haunted me for many years. How do you portray such horror? And I came to realise it was simply in trying to imagine the physical reality of being a prisoner of war as best I could and describe it as accurately as my, um, my talents allowed. I, I spent quite a bit of time with my father um, and I would ask him the simplest questions. I never asked him profound questions, but I would ask him, um, how did the limestone rock actually cut you? What did it feel like? Um, what was the colour of the rice at breakfast? Um, what was the taste of it? Where did you eat it? Because I think um, uh, truth always exists uh, in the concrete details. That the late Marquez, in um, uh, the beginning of his greatest work, 100 Years of Solitude, has that marvellous line, um, the world was so recent that things lacked names, and in order to indicate them, it was necessary to point. And really, that's the role of literature, to point but never tell. 
and it is for the reader to invent um, meaning thereafter. Yes, I, I, I understand. I, I have a theatre background, as you know, where again one thinks about the sort of cathartic effect of a piece of drama where, you know, depending on how it is presented, sometimes all of the work is done by the actors. Sometimes they merely lay something open for the audience to make up its own mind, as it were. And I can relate to that quite closely. Well, I, I think readers, um, reading's ever a far more intelligent and creative act than writing. Um, mm which, as you people who are now meeting some writers will come to realise is absolutely true. And, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and it is, and the, and the more you write, the more you realise that the less you should never, you should always assume your reader will discover more in the book and know more about the book than you will. Yeah. Um, I think it's Chekhov who said that um, uh, it's merely the, the writer's job um, to describe what people said and did. It is for God and the readers to judge. Yeah. Um, when you, you, you mentioned you spoke with your father about his experiences in the POW camp, but not at a profound level, did, did he volunteer much about this, or was it only when you asked him specific things? Um, I, I, I think my father was unusual in that he did tell, tell us always when we were growing up some stories, but yeah. they were selective. And then I think his memory um, slowly distilled his experience into... Um, an idea of love. Um, every man responded to that particular experience of hell differently. Many men um, chose never to talk about it. And um, in this strangely confessional age, that's viewed as a great wrong. But I think um, man survives by his ability to forget. Um, and it was necessary for those men when they came back two for a time, forget. Yeah. Equally, I think freedom only exists in, in the space of memory. And at a certain point, um, you have to advance back into memory and try and understand it and come to some accommodation with it. But, but sometimes that's not a task that an individual's up to. Sometimes I think, I, I realised in writing this book that the job of communicating what for many people who experienced it was incommunicable falls to others, writers and artists and so on. There's that beautiful story of the, the great Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, who um, was the greatest of all the Russian poets yeah. of the 20s, became a, a non-person and lost all the rights um, in the 30s. And in 1942, she's queued up midwinter in Moscow in a, a long queue outside the Lubyanka, the KGB prison. Um, with some food for a son who was imprisoned inside. And um, there are all these starving people waiting to see their loved ones, not knowing if they're going to live or die. And a woman recognises Anna Akhmatova as this great poet who's become this non-person. And she seizes her shoulder and gets her to turn around. And once she knows she's Anna Akhmatova, she says to her, can you describe this? And Anna Akhmatova says, I think I can. Mm. And I think that that sometimes falls to the writer to communicate the incommunicable things, both the, the, the ecstasies of life, but also sometimes mm. the horrors. Mm. Mm. I mean, it seemed to 
part of the power, it seems to me, in the book is through the, the juxtapositions that you have in the, the structure of it and different characters set up against each other. And you, you also present us, you're quite even-handed, if you will, by presenting us also the Japanese point of view at various points during the novel. Could you talk a little about that? I, um, well, it, 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 I don't know why, but it mattered to me that the Japanese were as fully represented as the Australians, or it, it, it seemed to me that I would have failed. Mm. But uh, again, I wasn't sure how to do that, that there were several things that allowed me to enter it um, in my writing. One was an extraordinary story by Joseph Conrad called Outpost of Progress, which is really a greater story than Heart of Darkness, but not dissimilar, in which two Europeans end up um, up the Congo running a little outstation for an unnamed company trading ivory. And these men are lazy and incompetent. Um, but over time, um, they, there's, there's this moral decline and they start trading ivory for slaves. Mm. And then um, their supply boat never comes and never comes and they, they decline further and they have these slaves and they fall to fighting and in the end one kills the other. And then finally, the, the, the final paragraph, just as the supply boat comes up the river and around the corner, the other man hangs himself. And the, the point of the story really is, is at every point these men believe all their acts are in, are in the interests of progress and that they will deliver a future to the people and the place they're in. And I realised um, the Japanese were no different than the Europeans. They were no different than the English I'd written about in Wanting, who'd mm. staked Aborigines' heads mm. above their tents. In the end, the Japanese were me and they were us. The other thing that allowed me into it was I, I went to Japan and, uh, as I've said in several interviews, I, mm. I met with Japanese guards. Yep. And um, that was uh, a, a, a quite difficult trip for me to make, but um, in the end um, I did what I'd done with every other aspect of the book and when I met them um, I would simply try and uncover these very particular details of um, where they slept, what they ate, what they wore, how they hit each other, how they hit the prisoners. I, I had one guard hit me. Another guard, I remember, I felt there was about them that, that there's always this great question, are they guilty? Do they know guilt? I think guilt is a, a slightly different, more abstract concept than shame, which is a, a very um, fundamental human emotion. I think a lot of these men didn't feel guilty, although sometimes they professed to it because they understood they were part of a system they couldn't escape. Yeah. But they did feel something more fundamental and terrible and that was a shame that needed some form of redemption. And I remember I went to the remains of the camp where my father had ended up as a slave labourer south of Hiroshima working in a coal mine under the inland sea. And I met a guard who'd worked there. He was a tiny man, about 93. And at one point, media turned up, wanted to film this. And um, at one point, they wanted us to gather and I, it was a very cold day. It was a bitterly cold place. And uh, I put my arm around him. And he curled into me like a child who's... Um, that, that thing you, you have with children sometimes, that they just want to be held and forgiven. And we held each other for about five minutes. 
He never said anything. Yeah. But I understood something. Um, and, and when I returned, I told my father about that. My, I got home and within a few hours, the phone rang and it was my father, who by then was 98. But his memory was still good and he asked what had happened. And I told him I'd met this man, the lizard had been the Ivan, the terrible of his camp, that I'd met some of these other guards and that they all in the way, well, they, they all did say to say sorry to my father. And I said they all felt shame. And he, um, he then couldn't speak, which was unusual for him. He used to like having a good natter on the phone. And um, he suddenly hung up. And later that day, he, um, he lost all memory of the prisoner of war camps. And it was as if he'd finally been liberated from them. Yeah. And the rest of his mind remained as sharp as ever. And he knew he'd been there in a way that, you know, you've been a fetus in the womb. But all, the, 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 it was sort of the final act of both memory and forgetting. Mm. Mm. You, you mentioned the sort of the Japanese, the, the great shame uh, that, that they experienced, if not guilt. Do you think that the prisoners of war sort of internalised that as well? Well, having said that, I, I mean, I, I do think some people are capable of never knowing shame. Yeah and never knowing guilt, and one, you, people shouldn't be naive about that. Yeah. And I think equally the wickedness of what happens in those situations is the people who often feel the greatest shame and the greatest guilt as survivors. And I mean, that, this is a well-documented yeah. phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Something else that, uh, that struck me quite strongly, looking at the, both the prisoners of war and the Japanese, is an awareness of class uh, in the novel. That is to say, there are, there are sim similar experiences felt on each side by some of the soldiers and so on. Could you talk a bit about that? In what sense, Stephen? Um, th there's an awareness on the part of one of the Japanese characters that he's aware of um, his position in society, I think, that, that he's, he's landed in this position and he's resentful of it. Um, and there's, there's a sort of, I think this is reflected for me in, in the sort of the camaraderie among the sort of working class prisoners of war reflects, there's a sort of an awareness between them of something similar. You know, once upon a time I believed in all these identities like class and so on, but I, I guess as a, a novelist you become more interested in the strangeness of mm -hmm. every human being's heart I think it was the 19th century journalist Hazlitt who wrote, for every tyrant born, so too are a thousand men willing to be enslaved. And the horror of war is how many ordinary people um, sign up for horror mm. and allow themselves to be the instrument of horror. Mm. Um, uh, the, the, the intriguing thing for me is since this book's come out, a lot of people have talked about the class aspects of it. Um, Perhaps that's because um, we've suddenly awoken in an age that we realised is much darker than we'd known and um, pregnant with um, more terrible things than we previously imagined. I, as well as everything we've discussed, I think the, the novel is very much a, about love and is a love story. And I wonder if we could talk about that, but if perhaps you could read again first? Certainly. Yeah. Um, Stephen he's a, a theatrical producer. He just uh, tells me what to do, what to say. And <laughs> I, uh, I'm just a scribbler who got lucky, and uh, I do what I'm told up here. Uh, this is a, 
a chapter about one of the POW survivors many years later in his own home in, um, in Tasmania. It, it actually, um, it, it's one of the few elements of the novel that's uh, close to my life. Decades later, Jimmy Bigelow would insist that his kids always fold their clothes so, fold ever outwards. He would open the drawers of the Chester drawers in their suburban weatherboard home in Hobart to make sure they were safe and the fold was out. He would never hit or smack them for not folding their clothes with the fold out. He would beg and plead, he would order and demand and in the end, exasperated, he would refold and restack their clothes himself as they stood by nervously waiting. He would feel some nameless terror that was beyond him to explain. A confusion they too would carry with them for the rest of their lives that was both love and fear that was beyond the drawers opening and closing, beyond their father's frustration and mumbling. He knew they didn't understand, but could they not see? How could they not know? It should have been so obvious what had to be understood. You could never know a moment when everything might change, a mood, a decision, a blanket, a life. They knew none of it. They only knew that whatever they did, he would never hurt them. At the very worst, he would throw them over his knee, bring his hand up and then hold it there, hovering over their bottom. Sometimes they would feel him shaking through his knees and thighs. They would steal a look upwards and see his hand trembling, his eyes watery. How could they know that their father was desperately trying to protect them from the unexpected smash of a rifle butt into their soft child's cheeks? To warn them of what horrors this hard world had ready for the unwary, the unwise and the unprepared, to prepare them for all those things for which no one could ever be readied. They knew only this one thing, that he would never hurt them. As his body trembled back and forth through time, they knew what he meant when he said, rightio, and suddenly threw them off his lap and back onto their feet. And averting his eyes, he would wave them away with an extended hand. That's it, rightio, just, just put the fold out next time. Out, always out, rightio. And they would run outside into the sun. Perhaps he wondered he didn't make the time or space he should for love. He fitted it in and it flitted away. Perhaps he somehow chose why he couldn't say the predictable lines of work over love's wild circling, the folding of a blanket over the unfolding of locked arms. But sometimes it was just there, staring out an open window to see little Jody look up and wave to him with the biggest smile. He was shocked to see love playing in a backyard of brown grass under a sprinkler's diamond spill, shocked to know he had been lucky enough to live and know it, to love and be loved. 
and he would watch his children playing outside in the sun, ashamed, amazed. It was always sunny. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. I mean, the, the, the novel contains love stories, lots of love stories, I think. There's the familiar love, there's the camaraderie between comrades at war, and of course there's romantic love. Can you talk a little, I mean, and your writing of love, I think, is very true, by which I mean it's not, so often one reads of love and it's evasive, it's what not said, but it seems to me, again, as with our discussion earlier about the violence of the camps, your writing of love is very true and real. Could you talk about that? Uh, well, thank you for, for that. I, um, I was terrified about writing what is a love story because um, people always know, everyone's known love, and um, if you get it wrong, they'll throw the book across the room. And um, so it's, it, it matters yeah. enormously to get it right. As I was finishing this book, I realised that what loomed over it was this question of love. And I realised that it had to be about those many forms that you spoke of, the familial, the sexual, the marital, the paternal, the camaraderie, and so on. Um, and all these forms of love sort of, ex I think, exist beyond good and evil. They exist beyond reason or comprehension. And, uh, and yet without them, um, we only wish for death. And, and that there are no answers to the, the, the strange demands they make of us. Um, the terrible and awful sins they sometimes make us forget, uh, uh, commit. Yeah. Um, but it is, above all, what the thing, I think, that um, allows us to live lives that are fully human. Uh, there was a, re a review of the book somewhere that said the book failed to answer questions about this and that. I think it would be a terrible book if it answered any questions. <laughs> <laughs> but can we talk a little about Dorigo Evans in, in particular? I mean, Dorigo is a sort of a, a reluctant hero or an anti-hero, if you will. Heroism, I think, is thrust upon him, and he reluctantly, in the camp, reluctantly takes on that, that mantle because he realises that his men need him to, to, to take on that mantle. Um, but he, he is haunted by this relationship that has taken place just before he goes off to fight. Can you talk a little about him and about that relationship? Uh, the, the, the strange thing when you finish a novel is that um, you're expected to understand your characters, but I think... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I understand them less. I, I was rung up the other day by um, a woman who's doing a doctorate on um, the translation into French of some of my novels, and she said that the translation of Death of a River Guide, one character describes another as being built like a brick shithouse, which the French have translated as um, he looks like a hard urinal. Which... <laughs> which... Um, I think it's a particularly sort of Parisian insult, really, <laughs> to our Australian manhood. And, um, uh, and so it went, you know. The, the book, she said, was a litany of um, horrific confusions. But then I realised um, so too was every reading, you know, and yeah, um, yeah. Th that's just more extreme. <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier that um, 
you're working on. <laughs> no, look, honestly, I, I, uh, uh, I, I, years ago I had to do this, this um, tour of America for Death of a River Guide, and it was published much later than some yeah. of my other books. It was published out of order, and um, um, when I landed, I actually had a panic attack over the Pacific because I'd forgotten what the book was about and who was in it. And, um, when I, um, so I resorted to the bottle and I, I landed LAX in a state of confusion and um, uh, to be greeted by a publicist who, who was shrilly excited that we landed a national radio show and the only problem was we had to do it immediately. So I slung into a taxi and a... Oh. Going down the LA freeway to, to what I thought was the end of um, my book tour, and I got in the studio, and there's one of those marvelously industrious North American types who'd not only read the novel, knew all the characters' names, which helped me an enormous amount, um, and uh, who they were, what they did, and why I'd written the book. And um, I can only thank him for his insights into my genius. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, toured the land of the free for the next six, six weeks, um, shamelessly parading his insights as my own original <laughs> motivations. Um, <laughs> who remembers a cloud, I think de Maupassant wrote. I mean, um, I, I, you, you books are a strange summary of them. Um, they're a cracked diary of your soul for the years you write them. and. Um, and thereafter, they are as surprising to you as they hopefully are to the reader. <laughs> but that said, has your, your perception since publication... I mean, I, I appreciate sometimes when one is talking about, as you say, one about a novel, that actually you were writing, you delivered the manuscript a couple of years ago or whatever, and have indeed moved on to something else. But has your perception of the novel changed since it was published, just in terms of conversations like this or reviews or questions from audience members and so on? Um, no, because I think there is w whatever the novel is to you and, uh, and then there is what it is to others. And, yeah. um, you know, who knows what Shakespeare intended with Macbeth. I mean, in the end, it's irrelevant. And yeah. um, I think he'd be astonished by what happened, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you, you just hope um, that you're sufficiently misunderstood that people will buy your books and you're allowed <laughs> to write another one. <laughs> Um, but I, I, the one thing I do know is that it, it felt like um, a cathartic dam burst for me, sure. and and uh, and I've nearly finished, um, or I'm, I'm well through writing two other novels, uh, and I'm writing in a way I haven't written before. And it was I, I, I said it when this book came out that it was a book I felt I had to write in order if I was in order to be able to write. Any other, any other books or to write again in the future. And, um, and now the, the words are spilling out for the first time in my life. They're probably rubbish, but um, it's, a, it's a relief and it's a strange um, liberation for me. Yeah, yeah. What can you tell us about those two? Well, one's inspired by uh, an extraordinary event in Tasmania many years ago that there was... Um, um, uh, there was this possibility that nearly became a reality of um, Palestine being founded in southwest Tasmania. Um, and uh, what happened was the Zionist movement split in the 20s into the, between those who wanted Palestine and those who believed this had become an unrealistic goal and couldn't be achieved. And these people who were known as the Freelanders um, were led by this charismatic man called Isaac Steinberg, who'd actually been, he was an Orthodox Jew from Latvia, 
who'd been the Commissar for Social Justice in Lenin's first Bolshevik cabinet, um, fell out with Lenin um, and then ended up in um, Cheka jails, um, escaped after a couple of years, got to Berlin and then London and became leader of this movement. He, he got the support of everyone from Clement Attlee and Ernest Bevan to Helena Rubinstein. He, he could see the Holocaust was coming. He went to look at Madagascar, Uganda, ended up in Australia in 1939, and um, he was very keen on the Kimberley, but the West Australians, being as they ever have been, weren't keen on Isaac Steinberg. And, um, <laughs> and, and then, and, and then he, he met um, Linka Isaacson, a, a, a Melbourne socialite who wrote the, uh, a Jewish Melbourne socialite who wrote the social pages for the Melbourne Argus at the time who was having an affair with the, the, um, the foppish son of a mining magnate called Critchley Parker, who was sort of the Kerry Packer of his day. And, um, and the foppish son um, desperately wanted to impress Linker Isaacson, and he suggested that perhaps they should try and ta get hold of, you know, a large part of Tasmania for Palestine. And um, <laughs> this, is all, this is all true. And um, it, it's, it's so utterly amazing. And, so <laughs> now, what you then have to understand is there, there was this certain idea amongst um, the Irish Catholic convict people of whom I'm descended from that we too were a lost tribe of Israel being exiled by <laughs> the Egyptians who were the English. My grandmother used to tell me this. So Steinberg, who's this, um, I mean, he's a hard man. He's seen the, he's come out of the horrors of early 20th century Eastern Europe with its, its pogroms. Um, the dreadful civil wars, the rise of Bolshevism and so on, he ends up in Hobart being given a bear hug by the Deputy Premier of the then Labor government, who was the grandson of an Irish convict, who, who tells him, um, I am your cousin. Um, <laughs> would you like a third of Tasmania? And um, Steinberg was very suspicious. <laughs> and uh, Critchley Parker, who was a man so physically hopeless that he used to get seasick crossing the Derwent River from one side of Hobart the other, then went down to explore it because there were only these maps which are something like out of um, Tolkien, you know, sort of large mountains here, you know, possible course of river, strange creatures with big feet and that sort of thing. And Critchley Parker went down to explore a man spectacularly unsuited for this. And um, he, he, he went out on a second mission in the beginning of the um, European summer of 1942 on exactly the same day as they dropped the, the first Cyclone B canister down the chute at Auschwitz. And in that summer, uh, which is our winter, um, that, that, that's the summer of the great slaughter in, in, in Europe. I, I think something like three quarters of European juries alive at the beginning, and at the end of that, only about a quarter's left. Um, and at that moment, as European juries suffering this most terrible fate, you have a lone crazed goy going out into the Tasmanian wilderness with the idea he can rescue all of them. Um, and he dies. Um, and they find his corpse uh, in a sleeping bag six months later, surrounded by all these diaries and notes for the new Palestine in southwest Tasmania at Port Davy, to be designed by Le Corbusier. He writes, who else? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, that's one, one novel. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> Possibly an HBO series, I think. <laughs> Do you want to hear the other one? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I, the other one is, um, many years ago I was trying to write my first novel, completely broke, and um, 
Uh, my wife Maida was heavily, well, about eight months pregnant with twins and um, we had absolutely nothing. I was labouring and um, uh, I got a phone call from a mate who was working as a bodyguard for Australia's um, greatest con man at the time, um, a man called John Friedrich, who had just defrauded the banks of about $700 million. And um, he had set up this amazing organisation, you may recall, called the National Safety Council, um, all on the bank's money. And uh, it, um, it had its own sort of secret army and helicopter gunships and submarines and Idi Amin's helicopter, and um, all for no particular reason. Um, and there were dark tales of the CIA being involved. Anyway, the whole thing went belly up. He went in a runner. There was the biggest manhunt at the time in Australian history, and he was extradited back to the Melbourne Watch House, where Harry Miller rang him up and said, don't sign anything. <laughs> I'll cut the deal. And um, he got an inordinate amount of money from a a publisher who must remain nameless to protect um, the follies of the innocent. And, uh, and after a year, so he got out on bail and then nearly a year went by and he was going to go to court and he was going to go down for a long time. And he hadn't written anything as he wasn't going to. He was criminally indisposed to leaving any sort of records. They put um, editors into work with him. They ran out screaming after half a day because he, um, he was an awful man. And uh, so finally they said, well, you get a writer if you won't work with our writers. So I got a phone call from my mate, the bodyguard, saying, well, well, he said to the Friedrich, he said, I've got a mate who wants to write in Tasmania. So they, they rang me up and said, do you want $10,000? You've got six weeks to write a memoir. And, um, and I, I, I had a crisis of conscience about the damage this might do to my completely unknown name and so on. That, <laughs> um, this possibly lasted 15 seconds. And um, <laughs> I went over and I met him and he, he was, um, uh, he was possibly one of the most, the darkest, most disturbing men I ever met. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, I, I was writing this memoir and in the middle of it he, um, he shot himself dead and I, I had to finish it. Um, which is a strange thing when you're reading in the papers the publisher has a tell-all memoir of Australia's leading con man but refuses to divulge any details. As, well, they wouldn't because I was making them up in Hobart still. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they, they say um, a writer's first novel is autobiographical, but the truth is my first autobiography was a novel. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there, there are other much darker things that went on, um, and I was interested in exploring them in a novel yeah. form, so that's the other book. And he, I, I actually learnt from him a lot about writing and telling stories because he had a genius at um, encouraging others to invent the tales that he wished them to believe about him. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a disturbing apprenticeship, but uh, there you go, you take what you can get. And uh, <laughs> but, but they're worse fates, I suppose. There's yeah. creative writing schools and, uh, you know. <laughs> uh. I was gonna suggest we take some questions, but I know you'd just like to finish up with a short reading. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is very short. It, um, writing the novel, I, I realised a certain point that, that the railway line was, um, the death railway was one of the great crimes against humanity during World War II, but even by the standards of war it was 
utterly futile. The, the Japanese had already lost the war and knew they'd lost the war before they started building the railway. And after the war's end, um, the railway was never used. Uh, and I realised the railway was actually, in a sense, the, the, one of the most important characters in the novel. And I wrote this line very near the, the end of the writing of the book, of this chapter. And what of the line? Would the dream of a global Japanese empire lost to radioactive dust, the railway no longer had either purpose or support? The Japanese engineers and guards whose responsibility it was were imprisoned or repatriated. The slaves that had remained to maintain the line were freed. Within weeks of the end of the war, the line began walking its own end. It was abandoned by the ties. It was dismantled by the English. It was pulled up and sold off by tribespeople. After a further time, the line began to bend and warp. Its banks broke, its embankments and bridges washed away, and its cuttings filled in. Abandonment ceded to metamorphosis. And where once death stalked, life returned. The line welcomed rain and sun. Seeds germinated in mass graves between skulls and femurs and broken pick handles. Tendrils rose up alongside dog spikes and clavicles, thrust around teak sleepers and tibias, scapulars, vertebrae, fibulas and femurs. The line welcomed weeds into the embankments the slaves had carried as dirt and rock in their tankers. It welcomed termites into the fallen bridge timbers the slaves had cut and carried and raised. It welcomed rust over the railway irons the slaves had shouldered in long rows. It welcomed rot and it welcomed ruin. In the end, all that was left was the heat and the clouds of rain and insects and birds and animals and vegetation that neither knew nor cared. Humans are only one of many things and all these things long to live and the highest form of living is freedom. A man to be a man, a cloud to be a cloud, bamboo to be bamboo. Decades would pass. A few short sections would be cleared by those who thought memory mattered, transformed in time into strangely resurrected trunkless legs, tourist sites, sacred sites, national sites. For the line was broken as all lines finally are. It was all for nothing, and of it nothing remained. People kept on longing for meaning and hope, but the annals of the past are a muddy story of chaos only. And of that colossal ruin, boundless and buried, the lone and level jungle stretched far away of imperial dreams and dead men 
all that remained was long grass. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're very happy to take a couple of questions. Um, you may know the drill. We, there's a radio mic on either side. I think only in the stalls, though, so far as I'm aware. Um, if anybody would like to ask Richard anything, do please make your way to the microphone now. Got a question? Yeah, there's a lady there coming, I think. Um, the best known doctor in the POW camps was the late Weary Dunlop. I wondered, one, have you had any reaction from the family of the late Weary Dunlop to your novel? And two, how much of his story actually influenced your story? Um, Weary Dunlop, uh, first of all, no, I, I haven't heard anything from Weary Dunlop's family. Um, but the character isn't based on Weary Dunlop. The, one of the extraordinary and largely unknown things about the camps, or the Australian prisoner of war camps, is that the leaders were the doctors. And there were um, quite a few, uh, well over a dozen at least, doctors who achieved the same status as Weary Dunlop with the prisoners of war. Um, Rowley Richards, Kevin Fagan, to name just two. And these men were just as remarkable um, as Weary Dunlop. Um, but Weary Dunlop was simply the one that became best known out of them. Um, my character... Um, is nowhere near as remarkable a man as Weary Dunlop. I, I wanted him to be uh, a much more flawed man. I, I met Weary Dunlop and had a night once drinking whiskey with him. And my father was one of Dunlop's thousands. So uh, I, I know his story very, very well. But, um, uh, you know, a character that is condemned to death and put in a sort of tiny little uh, chicken cage thing for the night by the Japanese and is to be beheaded the next morning and spends the evening um, practising reciting Keats' Ode to a Nightingale is uh, too extraordinary for literature. You're not allowed characters like that. <laughs> God's allowed characters like that, but I have to make do with um, the merely plausible, and that's Dorigo Evans. <laughs> Thank you. Got time for another question, if anybody would like to ask anything? Um, it's almost as long as the war to get out to these microphones. <laughs> I, I didn't realise what an ordeal you, you must go through to ask a question. <laughs> I, what an awful thing. I, I mean, I should add, while this gentleman's coming down about the character of Dorigo Evans, I mean, in the end, it is as Flaubert said about Madame Bovary, he, he became exasperated because people knew... Um, the story was inspired by a scandal um, near his hometown in Normandy of a woman who'd had an adulterous affair and then committed suicide. But of course the novel was about so many other things and in the end um, it was about 
Flaubert's own soul, and he famously cried out in exasperation, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. And in the end, it's, it's the same for me. Dorigo Evans is me. Um, the characters, if you tried to ape someone in life, would become wooden and unbelievable and, um, and I, I would always fail. So, sorry, this gentleman sorry. here. Um, Richard, my, my father was in a Japanese prison camp <clears throat> like yours and spent the war there and went through the same sort of horrors. My question is that you mentioned shame and guilt <clears throat> on both sides of the, the Japanese and our own people. Do you think that um, in the end, those who went through this awful stuff <clears throat> lost in themselves uh, a degree of human empathy? Could they come out at of all this mess, as, um, as human as they were when they went in, or did they spend the rest of their lives with a much less empathy for the other human beings around them? Uh, you mean the prisoners of war? Yeah. Uh, I can only speak from my experience of the, um, my father's friends. Um, I thought they were the most beautiful human beings who had the most extraordinary empathy. I know um, some of the POWs who came back could be violent in their own homes, um, but um, uh, there's one remarkable story. At the end of the war in Japan, um, the Japanese have surrendered. I, I met Japanese villagers, in fact, around, uh, near the camp where my father was at on the inland sea, but this story was repeated all over Japan. They were terrified the Australians would come and take retribution. Um, the Australians never ever did. And, and I've heard from the mouths of several that they had no stomach nor desire for it. Um, so I, uh, the ones I met actually had quite a profound empathy. Do you think Australians had more empathy towards their fellows than the Japanese guards, like the one you met? Well, I. I think evil is let loose in the world, um, not when the first man is beaten on a, a crime like the death railway or the first man killed. It begins decades before when public figures begin putting out poisonous ideas that some people are less human than other people. Uh, and if there's one thing that's haunted me since I've written this book, it is to witness what has happened in Australia over the last year, because it is the same thing that happened in Japan 20, 30 years before World War II. Um, it has become acceptable that our government can be cruel, that our taxes will be used to make people suffer, to be, we're paying, I cannot believe that it's deemed acceptable to pay close to half a million dollars per refugee to keep them in a hell where they can be uh, gang raped, beaten and finally murdered. And that we as a country had this experience of the prisoners of war that we understand and uh, feel about deeply, but then we're the same country that is doing this seems to me um, a great stain on our soul. Just one.
I'll just take one last quick question. Richard, you asked about you. You talked about the sense of release your father had when you told him the story when you came back, but you also talked about the the effect the novel had on you in terms of your creativity. I think is what you were saying. You know that that was somehow a breakthrough for you. And I'm just interested in that idea of sort of intergenerational. You know the the the, the way that that the next generation can play out in some sense the trauma of the parents. Is, that, is, that, is there a sense of that for you? Is there a sense of a breakthrough that was, your, in a sense, your, your, your father's breakthrough? Well, uh, that's a very difficult yeah. question to answer, but I think it's... Um, I think what makes war... Two things make war really evil. It demands of innocent people that they commit acts of great evil that they would in any other circumstance be locked up for life for or executed yes. in some... Uh, some domains. Um, these people are then expected to come back and live normal lives. Yeah. But what happens is that the, the wounds they carry in their souls um, are not limited to them. They pass into their, their families, their yes. children, and they are sometimes take generations to heal and they pass through communities. The thing about violence and evil is not the moment of it, which so much culture fixates upon but the causes and the consequences. Um, no single act um, exists in the particular moment. It's, it's the terrible chronicle of its subsequent history that comes to haunt and destroy us. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, ladies and gentlemen, Richard will be signing copies of this wonderful novel um, upstairs in the Ruth Cracknell room. But would you please join me once again in thanking Richard Flanagan. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. Please visit our website www.swf.org.au for more great talks recorded live from the festival.